first thing we point out on Job before we get into it is that there's a lot of things about Job and the story and all that we don't know. Uh, but I don't know of anything that we don't know that really keeps us from understanding the most important part of the story itself. In fact, uh, one thing we've been studying, Mark, on in going through the Bible in our regular services at church is that that um, a lot of things that that in the Bible that would have been readily and easily understood by the first readers is more difficult to us, not because it's difficult, but because we're so far removed from the situation. And a lot of things that the writer just assumed that his readers or his listeners understood because he was speaking to them with their idioms, their language, their customs, their background. And so there was no need for explanation of a lot of things that you and I will have to go back and dig up uh, the information on. It'd be the same thing if you're talking to a Russian, you could not make the same kind of assumptions as you can in talking to a fellow American. There are certain things that you could just say to me that you would have to explain, and vice versa in his case. And so it is that we have a number of things in Job, as with other books, and obviously the further back we go in history, the more this is the case, that uh, in order to fully understand, we need to uh, understand as much as we can about their customs, their language, and the situation. And sometimes we don't have all that we would actually want in our desire to know every single uh, solitary thing. But the important things uh, and the content itself we can know. And then, of course, we can go back and study the history and customs as learn as much as we can so far as uh, interpreting all that's there. When it comes to exactly when Job was written, for example, there's a tremendous debate among scholars. Uh, some scholars put it about 800 uh, B.C., some in the 1500s, uh, some about 2000 B.C., which we're taking back to Abraham. Uh, based on the contents and what I've read on the arguments and all, I personally believe that it goes back about 2000 B.C., and I would agree with the minority of scholars on that. I, I, when I look at Job, I just simply cannot see an individual uh, that is of one of the tribes of Israel. There's absolutely no mention whatsoever. Uh, there's no quoting of Moses or anything of that nature. And even with the customs and the language and everything, I just simply don't see uh, somebody who lived during the time of, of, of the law of Moses. And then when I read the customs uh, at the time of Abraham and also look at this and I see the format and all, it just seems to, in my judgment, fit that time. And so uh, you've got those, again, that would place it about 800, those in the 1500s, those about 2,000. My personal opinion is about 2,000 B.C., but that's my personal opinion. In other words, there is no one of the three groups that could present dogmatic proof for their position. Each present certain evidences. I just happen to believe the evidence favors the uh, about 2,000 B.C. More information in the future uh, may change that. And so, but whatever it is, 800 or 1,500, 2,000, really doesn't affect the meaning of the text itself. The story is not affected in the slightest. Uh, Job did not write it. It's written about Job. And we don't know the exact author of it. Um, in fact, it's interesting. Today, we sometimes get disturbed when we go to books in the Bible, and right away we want to know who wrote it. And it's interesting. Uh, when, when you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Matthew, that Mark, that Luke, that John at the beginning is something that we 
put in because we went back and studied the records and, and to the best we can figure it out, that's the case. But the author didn't sign it. And it's, the problem is that we want to gauge antiquity by our criteria of today. And so when we write something right away, we stick the name on it. Many times in antiquity, the person who actually wrote something, if he was writing for a particular community, or if he was part of a community that was writing something, or if he was writing for a famous person, he did not sign his name. He was just simply the scribe or maybe a group of them that developed that material. And so they did not demand who the exact author was or anything. Their, their main concern was, was the content of the material itself. And so the fact that we don't know who wrote it or the writer doesn't put it, uh, again, is a criteria sometimes that we try to force on the Bible that was not part of their thinking. Uh, they didn't footnote and everything in the way that we do. They just simply thought uh, different in that way. Then the question becomes, that, uh, why is it in the canon? Uh, we don't know exactly who wrote it. Uh, we do not know for sure the exact time. We can place it uh, at one of three different times with a high degree of accuracy and then debate over those three times. And the question becomes, why is it in the canon itself? I cannot go to the book and show... Uh, uh, that anybody here was a miracle worker or acknowledged as a miracle worker. I cannot go to the book and show prophecies uh, of the nature that Isaiah has and their fulfillment and everything. In other words, if I had to take Job out of the Bible as an isolated book and say, I'm going to prove this is inspired of God and God intends for you to have it, I could not do it. And I couldn't do it for a number of books in the Bible. Okay, couldn't do it for Esther, couldn't do it for a number of others. Well, why do we accept it as in inspired of God? And by the way, before that throws your mind in any way, uh, it would be like uh, trying to prove that Mark has uh, shot Jack, and we stack up the evidence, and we say, well, it's Mark's gun. It had Mark's fingerprints on it. Mark had powder burns on his hand. Uh, um, somebody saw Mark go into Jack's room, 15 minutes before he was shot. Somebody saw him come out 15 minutes after he was shot. And somebody heard Jack Holler Mark's name. You put all that together, and we, can, we have conclusively proved that you shot Jack, right? But what if we pull out one point, and it's your gun? That won't prove you shot him. Um, your fingerprints were on the gun. That still won't prove you shot him. Somebody heard him call your name out. Or... Just somebody saw you walk in, but take away everything else. In other words, there's no one fact there that'll prove it. It takes all the evidence together. And I point that out because sometimes uh, people that try to, in some sense, discredit the Bible want to handle it uh, different than they do any other type of evidence or any other type of thing they're trying to prove. So let's look at Job from the standpoint of, of the evidence that's there as to why we would accept it as part of the canon. Okay, now, for you and I as Christians, the biggest thing, before we even look at anything else, is that Job was a part of the Jewish Bible, the same 39 books that we have, that Jesus accepted as inspired of God. And it was there, it was part of the Greek Septuagint. Uh, the Greek Septuagint was translated uh, from Hebrew to Greek between 250 and 280 B.C. by 70, the word Septuagint represents that term, 70, 70 of the greatest Hebrew Greek scholars of that day. Well, those 
top Hebrew scholars, uh, 250 to 280 B.C., put Job in here. They excluded all kinds of material, but Job is here. And later on, Jesus comes along, and the apostles, and they quote and use from that same Greek Septuagint, and Job is alluded to in the New Testament, and uh, they endorse it. And so the, the, the uh, Jews of Jesus' time accepted it as part of the canon. Jesus accepted it. The apostles accepted it. And it was there from that standpoint. So then the evidence that stands behind them uh, stands behind this. But we move further on back. The prophets at the latter part of the Old Testament, like Malachi and Zechariah and on, keep in mind these people had a part in the accumulation of, this, of these materials. These prophets accepted this as part of the canon. And so keep in mind that these books that are in the canon were acknowledged and accepted by men who were inspired of God and who were recognized by their contemporaries as prophets based on the evidence that they saw with their own eyes. And by their judgment and discernment, it became part of the canon. Okay, then we go back and we look at the content of the book itself. And we find that everything that it teaches and endorses is harmonious with truth throughout the Bible that is endorsed. And the teachings here that are not endorsed are the same type of things that are erroneously believed in other parts and not endorsed. But we have the same exact thing endorsed, the same concept of God that you find in the Old and the New Testament, any place else, the same concept of right and wrong. We also find a misunderstanding that is straightened out in Job that parallels a misunderstanding that we can find all through the Old and even into the New Testament, and Jesus corrected it in the same way that Job did. Okay, suffice it to say then that if you can prove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if you can prove that the prophets of the Old Testament were inspired, uh, if you can prove that the apostles were men of God, then you can prove that Job belongs here because those are the people that accepted it. And without that endorsement, we would not have it. And that's why, for example, the Apocrypha books between the Old and the New Testament, although some of them, such as 1 Maccabees, contain outstanding history, in fact, accurate history, we don't accept it as part of the inspired record because no inspired person ever accepted it as part of the record. It was just history, but the apostles did not regard it as part of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the Pharisees, the Jews of that day, did not regard it. The, uh, those that had a part in handling the scriptures before Jesus did not regard it. Jesus never quoted and endorsed it in any way. And the early church fathers, directly converted by the apostles, never accepted it as anything except history. Never as something that was constructed by men who were inspired by God. And so suffice it to say, the evidence here is, is as strong as you could have from a Christian standpoint for including it uh, in, in the material itself. There is absolutely nothing in Job that you could believe that would be contrary to principles that are taught anywhere else in the Bible. It would only supplement and, and complement it. Okay, let's move in and look at the story then. And because it deals, in fact, it's interesting to me because that uh, when I think of the Bible and, and God is the author, and I think of the economy of words, and so much that happened, and it's so little recorded, that Job is, the very fact that, with that in mind, that Job is there, makes me 
uh, think of it in a, in a studious way. And when I think of the Bible without Job, I feel it would be lacking something. That it is absolutely the only book in the Bible that deals with one of the greatest problems that man has had through the years in contemplating his problems, death, sickness, and suffering, and existence of God, and right and wrong. Uh, the psalmist, there are several psalms that deal with this problem of why that the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked sometimes are prosperous. But Job is the only book in the entire Bible that's devoted entirely to the concept of why do the righteous have to suffer and why are the wicked sometimes prosperous. All right, now this argument is so important that uh, today atheists from a philosophical standpoint, would give as their number one argument against God the fact that uh, if God is all good, where does evil come from? If God is all powerful, why doesn't he destroy evil? Evil is here, therefore God cannot be all good. Evil is not destroyed, therefore God cannot be all powerful. If he's not all good and he's not all powerful, then, then your whole concept of God is to there is no God. And that is the number one argument against the existence of God. Job deals with that problem. By the way, of the various books and Christian evidences, the best I've read on that subject is one by Thomas Warren called Have Atheists Prove There Is No God? And he deals with that, and, and he uses the concept that's developed in Job to handle it. Okay, here's the concept that people believe at the time of Job, and it's being dealt with here. They have the belief that if you are righteous and if you're good, then you are going to be prosperous and you're going to be healthy. On the other hand, if you are unrighteous or bad, you sin, then you cannot be prosperous and you cannot be healthy. And so you looked at a person and by his prosperity and his health, you determined just how pleased that God was with him. They had the same concept concerning nations. And that is that by the prosperity of a nation, you determine the power of the gods of that nation and where they're placed with them. Now, if you think about this, that's not really a, a shooting in the dark type of thinking. That's very logical thinking, at least to my mind, uh, that uh, it would seem unusual to me that a nation would be pleasing to God and in poverty and a nation not pleasing to God and prosperous. Or that the people of God would suffer and those that were not the people of God would be prosperous. It would seem that their prosperity would reinforce their own evilness as being a right way. And so I'm saying the thinking behind it is logical. Not only is it logical, but as with any thinking that wins the minds of people, there has to be some truth to it. And there is truth. There, there is truth contained in the statement that the righteous are prospered and healthier than the unrighteous. And that we find statements like righteousness exalts a nation, sin is the reports of any people, and that to the degree of righteousness within a nation, to that degree you also find prosperity and health. And all there is truth to that statement. But what they've done is take a statement that there is truth to and push it to an extreme so they arrived at a conclusion that you simply could not have sickness or suffering or anguish among the righteous and you could not have 
the good happening to the unrighteous. And so that's their frame of mind. Now to show you how this was in their mind, even up to the time of Jesus, remember in John the ninth chapter, when Jesus healed the blind man, and remember the question that they asked him, has this man sinned or his parents? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents, but this happened so that the glory of God may be done. In other words, that he made it clear he's blind, but it's not specifically because of his sin. Uh, he's no more of a sinner than anybody else out there, or his parents sin, and yet he's still blind. But notice the concept in their mind. Okay, again, in Luke 13, uh, Jesus says, these people that the tire of Siloam fell on, they're no more sinners than the rest of you. And except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then he named another instance where a bunch of people were killed. And he says, there are no more sinners than the rest of you, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Well, see, when those two ugly events happened, the people interpreted it that it was because of their sin uh, that, it happened, that it happened to them. Okay, now, Job lives at a time when obviously Job believes this. And these others believe it. And so it makes an ideal setting here to teach a great truth and yet do it in a way that that is understandable and help us to see all sides of this. Okay, there's something else that comes into play here. Always, although we talk about the devil and we talk about Satan, he's somewhat of a mystery to us. I mean, after all, we haven't seen him. You're talking about something in the spirit realm. We debate whether he was at one time a, a high angel who sinned and, and then was cast into another position. I say we debate and argue about that because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics along that line. We come to that conclusion, though, with reasonable thinking. And that is that everything that God creates is good. Just like when he, in the beginning, in Genesis, on this earth, everything he made was perfect, including man. But then man had a free will, and sin came in because of that. That being the case, then it's a valid assumption to say that all of the angels were also made good, and we can read in other places in the Bible, like in Peter, about angels that sinned against God and were cast from their high position. And so it is uh, no injustice to the truth that we have and to logic to say that Satan at one time was a righteous angel and then wound up in a sunken position, in a fallen position, because he rebelled against God. There's nothing else, there's no other way we can explain his position based on the information that we have right now. Well, another interesting thing, though, about Satan is we, that at least it, you know, used to be to me, and I feel Job answers that, it helps to answer it, and that is that uh, why not just destroy Satan? I mean, they, in the New Testament, you've got Peter speaking of, you know, the temptations that come from Satan. You read about Satan tempting Jesus, and you think, well, God could just save everybody a lot of misery by just destroying Satan. And, but by the same logic, you could say, Right now, why not destroy all the wicked people on the earth? Why not destroy all the murderers? Why not destroy every bad thing on the earth, but God doesn't do that either? So the fact that God didn't destroy Satan, a fallen angel, is consistent with what we see in mankind. That mankind becomes wicked, and God still deals with him, and, and tries to reason with him. In his, in his wickedness, no, he still tries to reason with him. So we step in here, and we look, and... And we see some very interesting things that happen here, and that is that Satan comes on the scene and has a conversation with God. And God permits this and reasons with Satan. And what unfolds then is God is showing Satan something. There's a demonstration in this story uh, that's for the people 
It's also for powers over and above the people themselves. And at least it seems to say to me that uh, God could have destroyed Satan, but that would not have proved that God's way was right and Satan's was wrong. It just all it would prove is that God is stronger than Satan. And Satan don't have any problem with that. He knows that. That's obvious here. But God is out to demonstrate that his way is right, not just because he says so, but he says so because it's right. In the same way, God could just destroy all the wicked people right now. But that would not prove that God's law was right and their way was wrong. It just proved God's more powerful than anybody. But if God just allows things to take their natural course and certain ways are proven to be right and certain are proven to be wrong, then God's way is vindicated as being inherently right. And I think we see a principle here of God demonstrating that his way is inherently right and so right, in fact, that a human being... And we have been created in such a way that we're in a physical body with physical eyes. We cannot see in the spiritual realm. We cannot look God in the face. And so the great glory to God comes is when somebody in our environment, outside of the spiritual world, without the intimidation of an ever-all-present God, would come to the conclusion of his own volition that God's way is right. And this is the beauty of Job, part of it, that Job has done just that. That uh, a man, uh, again, God could have made us so that we could see in the spiritual world, but that he didn't do it. He put us here, no accident. We've been made, the Hebrew writer said, a little lower than angels. We've been put on this physical world for a time. We know it's temporal. We're going to the spiritual. That's the best mode. But why are we here? Well, we're part of a great demonstration. And that uh, God has something to show. And when Job, without being intimidated by God in any way, because he can't see God. And God's not around just waving fire at his face or anything like that. And of his own free volition, he observes life, and he comes to the conclusion that this law is right. It's just simply right. And he comes to observe the things that are made and comes to believe in a creator. And so he comes to believe in God he believes in all the morality that he can figure out and has been told and is aware of, and he can see all of that. The concept has been passed to Job about a Messiah to come, and Job believes in that, and he offers his sacrifices, just like they did in Abraham and Noah and Unbach. In the 19th chapter, the 25th chapter, verse 19, or 19.25, one or the other, we'll see when we get there. Job, right out of his distress, makes the statement, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and the latter day he will stand on the earth, and I will see him, though not in my flesh. And so we learn something here that this concept of the Messiah was very well known and understood by Job. He didn't understand all the particulars, but he looked forward to a day when his Redeemer would stand. But he also sees something else. In the experience that he had, Job came to see the need for a Redeemer and looked forward to the day when he would come and, and stand on this earth. And so he looks forward and he sees and he points and sees the need of the Redeemer itself. Also in chapter 33, Job sees the need for an umpire between him and God. He doesn't know how to argue with God. And he sees the need how to, to have somebody between him and God who could present his case to the Father and then present the Father's case to him. And so he calls an umpire, or day man as he calls, to, to stand between him and God. And again, foreseeing a need 
that we actually have in Christ as a mediator. Okay, let's get into the first chapter here. And it identifies uh, Job as in the land of us. Uh, this particular country that's identified from the, is in Mesopotamia. Uh, we can trace his lineage back over in Genesis. And of course, the Lamsa in his book, uh, highlights on the Old Testament has some information on that, but suffice to say for tonight that, that it's in uh, Mesopotamia, in the area of uh, Iraq. In other words, keep in mind that uh, Iraqi is, is where the Bible places the Garden of Eden, the present-day Iraqi between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and so this area also is over in that particular area. Job was a great man, it says in verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Uh, people that were wealthy were extremely respected. And see, their wealth uh, was proof of the fact that uh, in the eyes of people, of God's being pleased with them. And so he was well thought of and had a tremendous reputation. Okay, he talks about his sons and his daughters. And then notice Job in verse, uh, uh, first of all, it said in verse 1 there, uh, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So there's no question he was a righteous man. We're told at the very beginning. By the way, uh, another direct point at Job in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14, 14, put him on a par with uh, Daniel and Job and made the statement that though Daniel and Job were in the land in that time, that God would still destroy it. Talking about using Babylon to punish Israel and there not being enough salt to preserve the people. But the point is, Ezekiel called on Job as a righteous man that he paralleled with Daniel, who was also noted for his righteousness. So he's identified as a righteous man. He was a great man, and he was prosperous. And we see there in verse 5, middle of the verse, early in the morning he would sacrifice burnt offerings for each of them, thinking perhaps my children have sinned, cursed God in their hearts, and this was his regular custom. So he was so conscientious that not, not only was he concerned about overt sins, but even sins that uh, people, his own children may commit in their heart, that he was offering sacrifices. But we see again the concept of Job about atoning for sin and that there had to be sacrifices to atone for that sin. So he's a very conscientious person and also has the concept of the Messiah to come that's been passed unto him and he's offering the sacrifices. Okay, in verse 6, uh, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord or it could say the sons of God, either way. And uh, Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? Okay, Satan identifies himself uh, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. It's interesting, there is this uh, affinity for the earth uh, with Satan. And we have this, of course, uh, mentioned somewhat in the New Testament. He's referred to as the prince of this earth. And remember, he offered this earth uh, to Christ. And this can become important later on for understanding about prosperity and all here too. But uh, apparently that he does have uh, some things, there is some things here he can use for in temptation. He has authority concerning the earth itself. And then in verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, uh, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then here begins the key to our story. Uh, let's see, uh, Barbara, would you read that verses uh, <clears throat> 9 through 12? Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. We see something there that apparently, uh, obviously, whatever Satan can do is limited by God. And Satan understands this, that his limitations are strictly by God. We also see a principle here. God wanted Satan to observe what a righteous man that Job, he was proud of Job. And apparently the most righteous man on the earth at that time. And he pointed him out and identified him. And he was, and we see something of the attitude that God has towards righteousness when he finds it on this earth. Remember how that uh, impressed God was with Abraham? That before he went down and destroyed Sodom, that he talked with Abraham. And Abraham was able to reason with God, on, and God had respect for his feelings, and he would have spared that place for ten righteous people as Abraham tried to save a lot in his family. But the point is, the righteous all through the Bible, have always had a special favor with God. Uh, when we study prayer in James, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much before God. Uh, when Israel sinned, as, as Moses was leading them out into the promised land, God was going to destroy them. And Moses prayed for them, and God spared them because of Moses. And you can go a number of times and find where righteous people prayed, and God was in tune to their prayer. And so God, uh, uh, you read about Noah, that uh, he found favor before God because of his righteousness. And so we see something that is consistent all the way through is that the creator that is portrayed to us in the Bible is turned on by righteousness. And he has the same concept of righteousness. But then look at the argument of Job. And we can begin to see something in the wisdom of God and things being the way they are. He says... Uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, have you not put a hedge around him? And so Satan has said, well, big deal. Uh, you've made him rich and prosperous. You've protected him from all bad things. He really doesn't love you. He really doesn't think your way is right. He's just smart. He's doing this for the prosperity. All right, let's think on that just a minute. What if it were the case that every time a person acknowledged that God's law was right, and every time a person made the decision that, uh, well, for today, for example, that I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be a member of the, of the church, and I'm going to go to all the services, and I'm going to do right things. And every time that happened, all of a sudden, that person no longer got sick. He just didn't get sick anymore. And all, everything he touched turned to go. And so he becomes very prosperous, and he get, didn't get sick. You think we'd have a problem filling the church houses? But the question would be, would they be there because they had come to the conclusion that sin was wrong and they were sorry they had sinned and out of godly sorrow they had turned from sin and embraced God's law and they loved God and respected him and that's why they worshipped him. Well, they, there may be some of them that would fit that category, but I'd say we'd have a lot there that were there for the, just the, the reasons that we mentioned. And so I think he began to see something so far as the purpose of God is concerned. And by the way, this is, I think this concept is really important today because a lot of the special, especially TV evangelists try to convey something in their teaching 
uh, that prosperity is tied in uh, with righteousness. And they get on there with their $500 suits and their, their long limousines and their airplanes and their fantastic everything that is. And like uh, Oral Roberts made the statement in an article that I clipped down not too long back, he has no apology whatsoever to make for his millions and the way he lives or anything like that. God has prospered him based on you know who he is and being, being right with God. And his whole thing would be, you get right with God and, and get it going and he'll do this for, for you too. Well, the oral's not impressing a lot of people in the world, though. So, Job was prosperous, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Satan makes an observation. All right, now, this is key because we get into it. And I remember the first several times that I read this, I thought, man, that's terrible to let this happen to Job. You know, he's a righteous man, and he is just going to be absolutely miserable before Satan is through with him. He'll lose his family, all his children. Uh, he's going to become a sick and a suffering type man going to lose his friends. He's going to be spit on and mocked and, and made fun of and, and belittled. And we see something here that from God's standpoint, learning spiritual truths are sometimes worth uh, a little bit of hardship for a point in time. And Satan had something to learn. And Job had something to learn. And by the way, Job is not the perfect man that we've sometimes portrayed him. Job had something to learn too. We've often uh, portrayed this like Job just passes a test with flying colors, and he doesn't. Job's going to get rebuked at the end of this. He's more right than the rest, and he's a righteous man. Uh, but Job's going to get rebuked. He's got a lesson to learn, too. And so we can see that there's a very practical reason for not God not doing the very thing that some people want him to do. And so he tells Satan, okay, Satan, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So then we read about what happens to, uh, when he mentions the Chaldeans, uh, that's the, in verse 17, uh, a raiding band that came down and, uh, and uh, killed his sons and his daughters while they were partying and tore up things and all. Uh, this, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, okay? And the, again, you're dealing in Babylon, right over in the Mesopotamia area. And so you can see, again, tying in the section with the land of Uz, obviously right close there. Now, According to uh, the customs and all that, and the history that we have, this was very common uh, back in that day among the Arabs and the people of that time that uh, they did raid one another. And so these Arab bands were constantly raiding one another. And so whatever happens here is not out of keeping with the custom. It just apparently this had not hit Job. And so it hit him and, and his children and all were lost. Okay, verse 20 uh, let's see, uh, Sam, read uh, verse 20 uh, through 22. At this, Job caught up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, so all of this happens to him, and man, we now we really get to see what Job is made out of. He tears his robe, this again in keeping with their customs. This was the way they showed their mourning, is they tore their clothes. They would take earth and put it on their head, and also would put on sackcloth. And this is the way that they would show their mourning in, time, in anguish. His comment, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised and all this Job did not say. The beauty of this is Job doesn't understand what's happening. And he doesn't know why. And as we're going to see, Job knows that he has not gone out and willfully sinned against God. But it happens. God allowed it to happen for whatever reason. And he accepted it. And he didn't understand it. But in doing this, he was being used by God to teach a lesson even to Satan and whoever else was aware of what was going on here. And that was that obviously Job's belief in God and his belief in God's righteousness was not based on his own prosperity. Now, he may have enjoyed the prosperity, but it was believed on his, his conviction of the sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, and that anything that God allowed or permitted or did was right. And he shows that in what happens here. Okay, on the day the angels came to present themselves, this is again chapter 2 now, on another day the angels, or sons of God, uh, came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Pardon me, there's no one on earth like him. He is blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Notice the, the acknowledgement by God. Job <coughs> did not deserve what happened to him. And he, this was happening, and we're going to see a principle unfold, and that is it is a great falsehood to believe that just because a person is righteous, that something bad can't happen to him, or that he can't get sick or have a lot of negative things happen. It can happen. And so he's, the statement here, he maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him, to ruin him without any reason. So there was no reason. Uh, Job did not deserve all that was coming upon him. Okay, now, Satan makes a statement in verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied. Okay, let's see. Mark, read that in from verse 4 on through verse 10. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Okay, so there again, the next thing with Job, that first he loses his children, and then it hits Job personally, and it was so bad that his wife says, curse God and died, and he replied to her as a foolish person, and maintained so far all through this without sin. And again, uh, it becomes impressive because... Even today, with uh, all the revelation that we have of the Old and New Testament and the knowledge that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us, how many people, uh, believers, now I'm going to talk about unbelievers, how many believers are capable of this kind of attitude where you can have something tremendously bad happen to you and still maintain your full belief and confidence in God and maintain your integrity. And even though you may not understand why it's happening, 
be fully confident that God does understand it, and, and there is a reason for it, whether you understand it or not. And yet he had all of this a long time before Jesus ever come and, and died or was raised, raised in the grave. Okay, he's got three friends that come on the scene. Uh, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. And they heard about all the troubles that have come upon him. And they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him. And when they saw him, verse 12, from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and nobody said a word. I was reading on that, again, on the customs at this time, that uh, in the East, in fact, it's still in that part of the world at this time, that when there is great anguish and suffering, uh, death in the family, for example, when people come to mourn with those that have been hurt, that unlike us, that many times they say absolutely nothing. They walk in and they sit down, and they say nothing. And then after a long period of time that somebody will speak and break the silence. But the first show of respect is to say nothing, just to come and make your presence felt. And uh, Lamsa points out in this that the fact that you have that period of time, a long period of time specified, showed their tremendous respect for Job and how they were touched with his plight, that there was that period of time where there was just simply nothing said. Now, when you read that, seven days and seven nights, whether that is literally seven days and seven nights, I personally don't believe you could be dogmatic on that. At least I wouldn't be, I should say, because of the way the word seven is used uh, in the Scripture, like forgiven not seven times, but seven times seventy. And the term seven is used over and over in a multitude of ways. And so could be, it really doesn't matter. The point is, the term seven was also used as just a perfect period of time. And he definitely is representing, God said to uh, Elijah, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to bow. Well, I don't necessarily believe a literal 7,000. But it was used as just simply a perfect period of time. And, it, and, and the word seven, I guess going back to creation and God resting on the seventh day and the Jew keeping the, the seventh day Sabbath was a number that to the Jew meant perfection and was used that way throughout their history. So anyway, a period of time may or not, may not have been the seven days. Okay, then in chapter 3 and verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Uh, this was interesting to me also. You know, he began to curse the day he was born and says, may the day of my birth perish. And you think, well, why does he say this? At least I always thought that. Remember when, the, when Jeremiah was suffering so much, he cursed the day of his birth also. Well, again, getting back into the customs of this time, and keep in mind that these people are a product of their environment. And they don't know everything. Just like Abraham, when he had a child by uh, Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, he was a product of the customs of, of that day. The people of the East were renowned for their study of astrology. And they had the belief, as a lot of people do today, that the day that you are born on has to do has something to do with your destiny in life. And so it would have, uh, according to, again, Lamsa, that uh, you probably would not have found anybody in this part of the world that did not put special significance on the day of his birth as having something to do with the future. 
Uh, actually, this concept will be condemned in the law of Moses, the belief that you can learn something in, uh, by looking at the stars and the day you're born and everything like that. But still, it wasn't belief. Well, then for that reason, when you read this, to curse the day of your birth, when everything has gone terrible, you actually see Job dating of the book itself that we can obviously see that this was something that they related to and Job believed and it was something that carried on, on down. But he was influenced by the customs and we're going to see in the whole discussion that comes through here that all of them have been influenced in many ways by the customs of that particular day. Okay, now come on over to uh, chapter 4 and finally now after Job speaks and they've come on the scene uh, Eliphaz is going to speak up and let's see, start uh, Nancy in verse 5 and read that uh, through verse 9. But now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. Okay, now look what he says to him. Uh, verse 6, uh, Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? In other words, your hope should be in your personal righteousness. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Uh, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And at the breath of God, they're destroyed. And so, man, he tells Job plainly that, listen, you need to come to grips with your sin. That you could not be suffering this way if you hadn't. Job, you just give me an example of a righteous person suffering in this way. Okay, now, come on over to uh, verse uh, 17 of that fifth chapter. And notice the statement again. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also will bind up. He injures, but his hands uh, also heal. And so, no question about what he's saying to Job. Job, God is disciplining you, but it's for your good. Uh, he's wounded you, but he can also heal you. But Job has a problem with that. And so we come into the sixth chapter now, and... And Job begins to defend himself, and notice in verse 24 and 25, Teach me, and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? And then verse 29, Relent, do not be unjust, reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? And so Job begins to defend his integrity. And here's a concept that Job has held as well as they have in the past. And he now has a dilemma, and we began to see something in Job. We learn from experiences. And the Bible, a multitude of times, will help us interpret those experiences, but we learn through experience. And there are things that, that we learn by way of experience that we just simply cannot know any other way. And so Job has the same misconception that they have, but now he has a problem. Uh, he knows in his heart that I have not done anything to warrant this. And so he challenges them. Show me something. Prove to, to me in some way 
that I've done something wrong to deserve this. He begins to talk and consider now in, in the uh, seventh chapter his situation. Uh, he defends his integrity. Verse 20, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Uh-oh, now he begins to challenge God. Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. And so he's saying, well, even if I have sinned, why don't you forgive me? Whatever. So apparently he's willing to do anything. Uh, there's no he can he can honestly see no reason for this happening to him because if he had sinned, then why doesn't God actually forgive him? So we see him perplexed about his situation. Bildad comes on the scene, and uh, let's see. Uh, Nancy, read. Uh, let's see, verse uh, four there, and then. Uh, And then come on over to chapter 9 and read uh, 1 and then 15 through 21. 8, 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. And then 9, 1. 9 and 1. Then Job replied. Oh, yeah, go on down through that. Oh, all the way through to what? To verse 2 and then uh, 15 through 21. Okay. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before, a mortal be righteous before God? And 15 through 21. Sorry. No. Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I did not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath. He would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. All right, what you see there is a, a confused man, but yet he's learning something. And, if, and he note, we see that. First of all, notice what... Uh, Bildad says in, in verse 8, again, or chapter 8, verse 4, uh, he blames when your children sinned, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Job, your children got just what they deserved. They sinned. And says, if you will look to God and plead to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf. And so they sin, Job, you sin. Okay? But notice what Job now comes to say, and we find Job. Uh, coming more to this understanding as we go through here. In verse 2, Indeed, I know that this is true. How can a mortal man be righteous before God? And what Job is going to come to realize is, Hey, I'm a righteous man. You know, I haven't done anything to deserve this. In fact, he knew he wasn't out willfully sinning against God. But Job is, is thinking, and he's going to come to realize nobody is perfectly righteous. And he hits on a truth there. That nobody is... And, but while he's in the process of learning this truth, we find him almost in a state of confusion at times because the truth he's learning flies in the face of what he's believed and what they believe. And so he can understand their reasoning. He's believed it also. But his point is, hey, I have not been an unrighteous person. But then he begins to think of God and his purity and all. And you know, well, what mortal man can stand before God? If you're going to think of righteousness in the sense of being absolutely perfect, then who can stand before God? Well, 
the truth is that when we speak in terms of a good man or a righteous man, in reality, although we don't say it, we mean that he's good in comparison with other men. There is no such thing as a perfectly good man, and there is no such thing as a perfectly righteous person, male or female, but we are good or we are righteous in comparison with other people. And so Job has made a statement here that from a standpoint of mortality, nobody could stand before God. Nobody was really and truly righteous. And then he talks about in the that ninth chapter, verses uh, 3 on through 14, the grandeur and the glory of God, and things that, he, things that he could do that no man could. And then in verse 15 through 21, uh, he says, though, though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead my judge for mercy. Uh, so he said, what can I do? You know, I can't stand before God. I can't argue with God. I can't challenge God. And so he doesn't understand, but God is mightier, and God is right. And so it's like I'm in the wrong, and I know it, but I don't fully understand what's, what's going on. Okay, now, in verse 32, He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hands on us both. And so expressing the need of somebody between him and God that would mediate between the two of them. Okay, now come on over to the 10th chapter. And uh, Jack, read that uh, verses 1 through 3. And let's see, I'm trying to spot fix them just enough to get the sense of the entire saying here. 1 through 3, uh, 7 and 8, and then uh, 18 through 21. I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? 7. Though you know that I am not guilty and not and that no one can rescue me from your hand. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? And then 18 through 21. Right. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before my eyes saw me. If only I had never come into being, or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night and deep shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Okay, now look at his problem. He said in verse 2, I'll say to God, do not condemn me. Tell me what charges you have against me. Uh, does it please you to oppress me? But then look at that latter part there. To, on the one hand, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked. And verse 7, you know I'm not guilty, and yet nobody can rescue me from your hands. Your hands shape me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Notice his problem? Job knew that there were some wicked people out there that God was smiling over in the sense that they were not being judged like he was. And so, man, this concept that he has is, in fact, before it's all over, Job is going to challenge them. And that's going to be one of the arguments he presents to their concept. Just think about it. There are people that you know 
that are unrighteous, that are very prosperous and healthy. Well, let's think about it today. Are there, are there people alive in the world today that would be considered in their lives immoral and unrighteous by the teaching of the Bible, and yet they're healthy, wealthy, and well thought of, and many times even live long lives? There sure are. Uh, people out there that, uh, uh, some of these Hollywood people that are, that I've known, you know, by the movies and all from younger that are way up in years and, and they've had a multiplicity of mates. Uh, they've sinned in any number of ways uh, and yet they've been renowned and, and published among the people. Look at some of these rock groups. They're rolling in wealth and everything that they want and yet seemingly sinning in every conceivable way before God. So that, that kind of thing does exist out there. So Job sees that and it really bothers him. Well, this is a problem that righteous people have wrestled with all through the years. And it's hard to, it's a hard thing to deal with that uh, when you go to the hospital and here is a person that you know is a faithful Christian and they've just been told that they've got terminal cancer or some other problem. And then here's this other person out here, maybe the same age, maybe even older, that is ungodly and uh, no problems whatsoever. So that kind of thing does happen. And Job realizes this, and he has a problem. And he takes that problem to God. Okay, Zophar comes on the scene. And he talks, and again, he's, and they're really getting fed up with Job now. Because that uh, they still believe that he needs to come to grips with his sin. And they're not doing a lot of listening to what Job, Job's saying a lot of good things. But they are still holding on to the concept that they have. Uh, read that, uh, let's see, verse 13 and 13 through 15, Louise. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. Okay, now look at what he said. Very plainly. Uh, just go ahead, Job. Get yourself right. Put away the sin that's in your hand. Allow no evil to dwell. Then you will lift up your face without shame. So he's not turning loose one bit. But Job, you have to be in that situation because of your sin. Now come on to chapter 12. <laughs> I always get a kick out of that. Doubtless you are the people. Wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. Uh, I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? In other words, you haven't told me anything I don't know. I have become a laughingstock to my friends. Though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of raiders are undisturbed and those who provoke God are secure. Those who carry their God in their hands. In other words, people out there in idolatry are better off than me right now. And so when they talk to him about the discipline of the unrighteous, the prosperity of the righteous, Job says, you're not telling me anything I don't know. I know that just as much as you do, but I'm having an experience. And in this experience that I'm having, I know I have not done anything to warrant this, and I'm also doing a lot of thinking right now. And there's a lot of people out there that are walking around carrying their idols in their hands that are better off than I am. And so, interesting that a lot of times that you can believe something that's false, that's handed to you, 
And, and maybe you continue to believe it because you always go at it from the standpoint of trying to prove that it's right. And then you can have experiences in life that force you to come to grips with whatever it is because your experiences fly right in the face. of. So we've talked somewhat on that on the uh, thing with the miraculous, that uh, you can literally be taught some things and, and then have experiences with those things and with people. And, and if the experiences fly right in the face of what you've been taught, then you've got a decision to make. And that is go back and re-examine your interpretation of this or just simply push it, push your experience aside and what you see and what you experience and, and just continue with it and try to figure out reasons that it may be so. And so that's what they're doing. They just keep at Job. They're defensive. Uh, Job says, that, you know, wisdom will die with you. You're not telling me anything I don't know, but I still know what I'm experiencing. I still know that there are ungodly people out there that are not in the shape I'm in right now. In verse uh, cha or in chapter 13, My eyes have seen all this. Mine ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. <laughs> A little humor there. Hear now my argument. Then listen to the plea of my lips. But Job, it's interesting here, he's really getting disturbed now. But put yourself in the position of Job. He is a man that honestly loves God. He's as righteous as he knows how to be. And he offers the sacrifices. He believes in the Redeemer. In fact, he's so impressive that God has used him before Satan. And a lot of negative things come in his life. And he is not the cause of those negative things. God is allowing something to happen for a reason that Job doesn't even understand. And yet all his friends can do is point the finger at him and say, Job, you must be a sinner for, for this to happen. Okay, uh, verse 23 of 13th chapter. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry shaft? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep watch all day on my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. And so now he's challenging God. But notice the statement he makes there too. You make me inherit the sins of my youth. And so now, Job, uh, remember when uh, the, uh, the uh, brothers of Joseph came into Egypt and then they realized the position of Joseph and right away they thought the sins of our youth is caught up with this. So apparently in Job's youth <coughs> there were some sins that he could relate to that he had, had he thought, repented and all but he now, he, what he's trying to do is figure this thing out. And the only thing he can come up with now is that God has brought all this on him because of the sins of his youth. And so we see Job trying to figure this thing out Notice also, as we go through Job, what a misuse of this it would be to just grab individual verses and quote this and say the Bible teaches such and such. And that's what is done sometimes with Job and Ecclesiastes and Esther and all. When in reality, what you have is a man that is actually confused and of his own intelligence is trying to figure this situation out. And the story is being accurately recorded. 
but there's no way you can come along and just grab that. That is Job's thinking. Job's right on some of his thinking. He's wrong on it. And these guys, the other guys on the scene, they're right on some of their thinking. They're right on the thinking, but they're in the process of trying to figure something out. Chapter 14, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Okay. Then he, he begins to want to die. He says in verse 7, at least there's hope for a tree. that if it cuts down, it'll sprout again. And he begins to think about death. But man dies, in verse 10, he's laid low, he breathes his last, and is no more. His water disappears from the sea. Verse 12, man lies down and does not rise. To the heavens are no more, men will not awake, or be roused. So there's no question that as far as his physical body was concerned, he had no hope for it. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. And then look at this question. Verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. And so he's waiting, he's questioning, he's thinking, will he live again? And then he says, all the days of my service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Now he's going to come further. He's looking for something. He doesn't fully understand that either. He asks the question. Now he's given up hope at this time, so far as this life is concerned. And he believes in a renewal. They don't fully understand it. And then he will eventually begin to think about the teaching that he'd had on the Redeemer. And let's see, come on over to uh, uh, page, uh, chapter 19, okay, chapter 19, and uh, look at verse 23 first. Oh, that my words were recorded. Well, of course, God knew all the time, I guess, that they were going to be, but Job didn't. That they were written on a scroll that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. And then notice this. I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. So he didn't fully understand it. Uh, you almost have him like uh, Paul when he mentioned that he was caught up in the third heaven and the paradise and says, whether in the body or out of the body, that I don't understand, you know, fully. But he just knew that he caught up. And so Job looks and he says, I know that my Redeemer will stand at the latter time. He will stand on the earth, that he was going to see God, but he wasn't sure of exactly how all this would take place or this form or state or anything like that. So we see that Job has a concept of living eternally with God. And he had the concept of knowing that he needed to be redeemed. But then when it come to exactly the form that he would be in and the state of that eternal dwelling, he was speculating and, and trying, trying to figure out. He just knew it was there. Oh, back to chapter uh, 16. He's still answering his critics here. Uh, verse 2, middle of the verse. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? Verse 4. I also could speak like you if you were in my place. <laughs> he got pretty sharp with them there after a little bit. Okay, come on over. Because of time, let's skip on over to chapter uh, 38. And actually what takes place in all of those chapters uh, up to chapter 38 is the continual discussion between Job and these three, one other comes on the scene. They continually try to persuade Job uh, that he has sinned. He continually argues with them. Now, 
for the first time in the whole book, in the entire book, chapter 38, God speaks. Okay, the Lord answered Job out of a storm, and He said, "Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. Where was you when I laid the earth's foundation?" Now, what happens now is God begins to ask Job a lot of questions that He simply doesn't know. And the whole thing was that God did know, and God was the only one that knew, and Job gets rebuked. And what Job is rebuked for is not his belief in God. He believed all the way through. But in the process of trying to figure this out, there were several times where he challenged God. And he just, he just couldn't figure it out, and so he began to challenge God, and God, why are the wicked prosperous? And, and I'm in this condition here. And so the first thing that God does when he appears to, when he talks to Job, is show Job just how small he was. And Job, there's a lot of things you don't know. And, you know, that's a, a good argument even today when people get into the spiritual realm and they seem to be bothered about some of the things they don't know that they'd like to know. How many things in the physical realm is it that we don't know? In fact, it's interesting to me, I was reading yesterday some material on evolution by those who believe the theory of organic evolution. And I was reading three different theories. And the interesting thing was, is that each person who believed one theory was taking apart the other theories. And they, in turn, were taking apart his. Obviously, I'm saying, even from their standpoint, they don't understand life. They, from a purely scientific standpoint, we get all the component parts to life, and that's it. We cannot manufacture or make life. And they really don't understand when it comes to talk about evolution, but when it comes to the even from their standpoint, the mechanism, they've got a multiplicity of different theories. They, they've just got a multiplicity of different theories. They don't understand it. And we could go on and on and on to how many things in this physical world that we just simply do not understand at all. And so he challenges Job, hey Job, look around you. There are all kinds of things that you don't understand. Who are you to challenge God? Chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man, and I'll question you. And you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Job, are you so concerned about justifying yourself that you're going to challenge and condemn the things that I do? Verse 14, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Chapter 42, skip over 42. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Verse 5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, the rest of the story. The others are rebuked. Job offers a sacrifice for them. Job is then prospered. Uh, it says in verse 16, he lived 140 years. He saw his children, their children, to the fourth generation. And so he died in old and, and full of years. And so 
he continues on, and God blesses him and gives him his prosperity again. But notice what happened as we come to the end. Number one, we see the belief that nothing bad can happen to you because you're righteous is an absolute falsehood. And God demonstrated that to Job and to those and exploded that right in their face. That is a falsehood. That there is more going on here than, than just mankind. And that God has made no promise that just because you're a righteous man that nothing bad can happen to you. In fact, the worst thing that can happen to us is death. And we're all going to die. And, and, and only sick people die. And so obviously it can on the other hand, we see that righteous people obviously please God, and God boasted of Job before Satan. And so as we see on the, one, on the one hand that there is no guarantee that everything's going to be perfect for you, but on the other hand, we see that God is pleased, and you can. we also see the principle come out that as a general rule, as a general rule, the righteous are blessed in comparison to the other. In fact, that's how they formulated that belief in the first place. And you can say that as a general rule. In other words, let's look at it from a, from a get into a, make a parallel with the, the physical. You could not make the statement as an absolute that if this person eats only wholesome food and exercises and sleeps right, and this person over here eats junk food, and does not get the proper amount of sleep and the proper amount of uh, rest and the proper amount of exercise, that unconditionally this person here will live longer and be healthier. And you can't make that statement. What you can say as a general rule, that's a truth. As a general rule, people who eat a better diet and who exercise and who take care of themselves tend to live longer. As a general rule, non-smokers live longer than smokers. But you cannot take any isolated instance and say, this person smokes, and so therefore he will uh, not live as long as this non-smoker. And so what they had, what they believed was true, but as from the principle of the, of the general rule that God's laws do work. And you are going to be blessed to the extent that you keep them, and good things can happen. But then we also have to keep in mind a couple other points. And one is there's more involved here than just you and I as individuals. And sometimes the righteous do suffer. Uh, they had a car wreck the other day, and uh, from what I gather, that uh, the uh, drunkard runs into three high school kids, and they're still the three high school kids are in the hospital, and the drunkard was barely hurt, and so that that happened. God didn't cause it. They maybe didn't deserve that, but the overriding program is that God does not interfere with free will. And innocent people sometimes suffer because of the sins of others, but yet we still see sin in the picture. Okay, there's still another principle involved in Job that comes out at the end. Although Job was a righteous man, he wasn't perfectly righteous. And that he could not stand in and of his own merit. And he, at the conclusion, he comes to that realization that he was unrighteous, that he should not have been saying the things that he was saying. And so now he repents in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, we have to keep in mind that as we strive to do right, and we want to be righteous, but we're not perfect. And so I can't sit here and complain when something negative happens. And number one, in Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Death came to man because of Adam, and death passed unto all men because all have sinned. And so I know that I'm going to die because of sin. And I know that, uh, that there's 
all kinds of things of a negative nature that have happened either because of my sin or the sins of my forefathers or the sins of people around me that I'm not perfect. And so there are certain consequences for sin. And so Job lived in the world as an individual who was imperfect himself. Job was eventually going to die as he did. And along the way, everything was not going to be perfect. Job was a sinner. And so we see that, number one, everybody is not perfectly righteous. Number two, those who are righteous from the standpoint of comparison with other people as a general rule, through the natural laws of nature, they wind up better off than the others. But that you cannot take that and say that, hey, that there's no, there's no situation in which a righteous person will suffer or an unrighteous uh, be prosperous. Because sometimes it's exactly that way. But now the way you can say that is in the eternal or long sense. And, of course, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 73 gets into that. He was bothered by unrighteous people. And then God allowed him to enter in and to see the latter end of those people. And he realized that although the righteous sometimes suffer, it's for a period of time, and the long run is, is good for them. And on the other hand, the other sometimes have it good for a short period, but in the long run, it just simply doesn't stand out. And then we see something with the discussion with Satan, and that is that God wants us, at least what I, from what I can understand there, God wants us to come to realize that his law is inherently right, and his way is inherently right, and to love him and to love his law no matter what. Uh, not for money reasons or any other reasons other than the fact that it's just right. And then the other might come. Uh, like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and these things will be added. The other, the other might come. But the point is, the kingdom of God and what is right ought to be sought, forgetting about the other, simply because that is right. And that another principle, it would seem to me, that if God will not use any of that as a motivating force, and then we ought to think twice before we try to entice people to be Christians with anything other than the life of Jesus and his teaching and, and sacrifice.